and welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union. Those with gender-critical views are a cancer that needs to be removed, cultural parasites and neo-Nazis. That was the comment that appeared on a petition launched on the intranet of the Arts Council U England against one of the council's employees, Denise Farmy. Denise Farmy is a mother of two from West Yorkshire. She worked for 15 years as a relationship manager for visual arts at Arts Council England. The council is funded by the government and the National Lottery. In 2022, Denise bravely spoke up in an internal Arts Council meeting to question why LGB funding of £9,400 for a film celebrating the progress of gay rights had been removed, what message that sent out about free speech, and what protection there was for gender-critical beliefs. The ensuing hostility that was directed towards Denise was ruled on the 27th of June this year by an employment tribunal to have constituted harassment. And that harassment included an email and petition that had that comment with which we started this episode. The Leeds Tribunal agreed that the email and comments violated the claimant's dignity, creating an intimidating, hostile, degrading, humiliating or offensive environment. But today, after her success, we are absolutely delighted to welcome Denise Farmy as our guest today on our podcast, That's Debatable. So Denise, welcome. And just out of the heat of battle, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. Thank you. So Denise, obviously you've been through an experience that nobody should have to go through, an experience that unfortunately members of the Free Speech Union, members of the public are becoming increasingly acquainted with. Mm. But nonetheless, there has been this drumbeat of cases, even just in the last fortnight, where we've seen success after success on the right side of this debate for gender-critical people, gender-critical women, uh, who are defending the right of women to object to aspects of um, trans ideology in the way it infringes on women's rights and the rights of girls. Um, so with my four status victory, with your victory, with the victory of Anna Thomas, uh, the Departments of Work and Pensions and others mm. beside, um, can the free speech side of this debate start to feel that we have the wind in our sails now? Or, or is that still a bit premature? I think um, legal precedent does help us, um, but it's often workplace culture uh, that that defines how people can speak at work. And um, certainly in the arts, we still have a big problem with the idea that the, the equivocating, being gender critical with being transphobic or being hateful, um, we still have a problem with that. And we've, we've seen that even very recently at the People's History Museum, which, because of staff pressure, um, apologised for hosting Sex Matters recently for their board meeting. You know, there's no reason on earth why they shouldn't host Sex Matters. It's a, it's a, it's a completely legal organisation um, campaigning for completely legal views. Um, so so there's still there are still lots of issues, I think, in, in organisations that put pressure on people just to, uh, expressing perfectly reasonably and uh, views that the majority of people actually share um, that um, sex can't be changed. And this is happening in, in the arts public funding areas, Denise, this this. Um, this no debate kind of feeling within staff members and from uh, the people giving out the funding. How have we got to this stage, Denise? And 
when did you first sort of come across it? Or did did you know what you were walking into? No, <laughs> no, I, I I didn't. You know, and and it has been a, a process of of self educating really, and and probably. I mean, I was encouraged to self-educate in order to find out more about trans issues that were coming up at work and obviously that we were seeing in artwork as well. Um, So I did and it kind of went in the wrong direction. You know, I thought, actually, I think these are very damaging ideas. Um, I think, you know, the arts is a really liberal place and and that's good and it's a very, it's a place where there's there's lots of risk-taking um, you know, lots of exchange of ideas and, and sort of sometimes confrontation to audiences. And and really that's what's made the arts in, in this country, I think, so exciting. Uh, and it's also meant that, that people want to work there and people come from all different backgrounds to work there. But unfortunately, what's happened recently is it, it feels more and more authoritarian where you have to toe the line on views that present themselves as progressive but aren't actually progressive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my, my view is that um, the trans debate often kind of, there's a stereotype at the, at the basis of, of trans ideas and which if you present as very female, then you're female. If you present as very masculine, then you're, you're male. And, and actually, people are all different, but we still have biological sex at the root of it. You can't change that. So I think there is a little bit of... Um, reductionism to kind of gender stereotypes and that's that's where the term gender critical comes from that many people are are critical of these gender stereotypes and don't want to perpetuate them but it feels as though the trans debate does perpetuate gender stereotypes yeah yeah how far um how far do you feel that the trans ideology has um captured artistic Output. I mean, be that in your own experience or, or the things you read, or if, in my case, just walking into a bookshop, you can see the um, the limitation of alternative points of views. And um, lot, many authors on the gender critical side have identified cases where, for instance, Waterstones will sell their books, but you have to go and ask for them at the counter, and the books are hidden away um, in a sort of forbidden section almost. Um, how how mm-hmm. far has trans ideology constrained what artists are able to? to do or say or paint or write or talk about um so from the outside of the arts world looking in uh, or as a consumer uh, it certainly feels like that hold is very strong even as people like yourself are winning these very important legal battles um, there's a sort of um there's a kind of chilling rather than cancellation so if you look at somebody like helen joyce you know her her book's a bestseller uh why wasn't she at um at various literary festivals across the country. You know, she, she hasn't been invited to any literary, literary festivals, given that she's actually a bestseller. So so rather than cancel a, a writer like Helen, um, she's simply not platformed. And and I think that does come from um, quite, the, quite the chilling effect of very active groups in the arts that are, are trying to suggest again that this the biological sex isn't real and that those that talk about it shouldn't be platformed so um i think i think it's not so much a stranglehold on arts production or it's just what is getting shown uh it seems to be again and again um a trans ideology now i think that's worrying partly because it, it feels like a bit of a fashion 
and the arts are just as as open to to any uh, you know any fashions so it feels like it's not for that particular movement it's it's a fashion that will move on i think um but i also think it's a bit alienating for audiences um when every single show is about the about questioning gender um, and and I, I do wonder what audiences feel about those shows, and we don't get much, we don't get enough feedback on that actually to know to know how people feel when they go into shows, such as the one that was at Tate recently, the the Queer and Now. How big was that audience that actually went to those events, and did, did the general audience um, get involved with that? And I did ask to to read their evaluation because it, it would be interesting to see how this program is going down with. with you know, the very um, diverse audiences that Tate Britain get. Um, and being a bit of a data nerd, I would have quite enjoyed reading that evaluation. But it's not public, which it should be, of course, because it's a publicly funded institution. Well, that's a, a really interesting point about um, a publicly funded institution having this sort of partisan view on such a such a mm. hot topic as, as, you know, the trans debate. Um, and... You know, I think one of the questions behind a lot of what we're talking about is how do we get back to that point of public funding truly being nonpartisan and, and truly mm. um, uh, being based on the merit, the artistic merit of whatever's being proposed. And I was thinking about this because if, and you can disagree with me, Denise, you know, if there's there's been a political capture in some way of the way that funds are distributed, um, is there a sense that, say, we did get back to being politically impartial? Isn't there an inherent uh, sort of weakness or Achilles' heel there that a truly impartial organisation or a truly impartial society is is at risk because it doesn't take a stance? It's at risk of being subverted. It's at risk of being subverted by very politically driven people, by very ideological people. And so it's almost like there needs to be an immune system. If we do go back in the right direction, we need to, to establish as well an, a sort of political immune system that means we're more resistant in the future to this happening with other issues mm. that are, as you say, potentially just trends, just moments in time. So I was, I was thinking, how do we do that? Um, but also, is there an inherent danger whenever we are politically impartial that we're at risk of, of being sort of got at by these by these people who infiltrate i mean the thing that you know the arts and heritage budget uh, from public funding is very very small you know if you compared it to it's the smallest department the department of culture media and sport it's the smallest budget um and if you look at uh in terms of government funding directly to uh, the department of culture media and sport but if you look at the influence of the arts and the uh, uh, including arts and culture um and you know the the impact of of the whole sector is gigantic there are there are millions of people engaged either working in the arts or or um or or, or visiting arts institutions so it's a very influential budget and it's highly competitive. It, you know, it's, it, it is very difficult to get funding, you know, from government and from various funders. Um, so how you start prioritising how those funds are distributed um, gets tighter and tighter. And, and, and the criteria for funding gets, gets ever more um, 
uh, perhaps complex because what you what 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 the arts is trying to do is many many things uh in terms of how in terms of the funding it's it's uh on the one hand it's trying to entertain and educate uh and engage what you know the, get families involved um you know so it's trying to do many things on the other hand it's a public fund which perhaps has a social um imperative of of in terms of its impact so it's it becomes it's pulled in many directions that that tiny art funding envelope um and it is hard to to hold on to impartiality of arts funding you know its leaders work hard to try and cling on to that now now what can happen though is that um you you, you go on a mission to maintain impartiality and provide as much access as you can to to the um to the outcomes of arts funding to the arts and you end up falling into a bit of a kind of which are the identities that you want to support the most yeah um and and that's where you can start to see impartiality starts to break down um because you're starting to to focus on particular groups which in itself is a political decision now it's political with a small p there isn't a Obviously, there's there's no um, party political alignment at all with arts funding, but but it can start to become uh, quite politicised, and and because this debate around how the Equality Act operates, what the protected characteristics are, um, where there's conflict between protected characteristics, such as between uh, women and gender reassignment under the Equality Act, when there's conflicts there, as in it, it's a very live issue. Um, impartiality can break down altogether. So, you know, that's the background to my case in which it was very clear that um, the Arts Council did not want to fund LGB Alliance, although it had already been funded uh, from another funder, and that funding was eventually withdrawn because a malicious um, case was against them at the charity tribunal, which they've just won. So... So there's a whole kind of complexity around, okay, we perceive this organisation as not fitting into our moral code or our, or our um, uh, sort of political basis, but we still want to maintain impartiality. Now, how does that work? It, you know. So, yeah, so your question was, how do we, how do we improve that? I mean, you know, each every organization every funder is very different isn't it and they've all got yeah. very they've all got very different um uh aims missions and staff policies and staff criteria um but even you know even if you look at the the debacle that the ons got itself into last year in delivering uh the census even the ons didn't want to pursue the protected characteristics of the equality act and and had to be taken to court to to revise the census at a very late stage to make sure that they reflected uh the equality act and you know now i mean we have we have um very odd data that's come out of that census as a result so you know how do we fix it i don't know my view is resort back to the law and use the use what we have already within the law 
which, um, you know, if you look at the public sector equality duty, is already quite a complex set of ideas to deliver. We don't need to go beyond the law or recreate the law. Institutions just need to deliver against the law. And what seems to be happening is kind of overreach going past that. Um, yeah. So that hasn't really answered your question. But that that basic principle of sticking to what's already in the law and then making sure all of that is drilled into every policy into every funding scheme. And um, leaders such as the Arts Council and other um, cultural leaders uh, need to be much clearer around that to the sector itself because, of course, the sector, all these arts organisations, they follow the lead of the funders, uh, which are obviously have um, uh, are arm's-length government bodies, so you can't blame them for following the lead of the funders as well as, as being their funders. Does that make sense, Tom? <laughs> I don't think there's an easy answer to it, Denise. No. Uh, but I certainly, the heart of your answer there, as I understand it, is, is going back to the law and applying the law correctly. Um, yeah. It's certainly, certainly quite a powerful point. Uh, sorry, Ben, I interrupted you. No, that's OK. We're both chomping at the bit. There's so much to discuss. Um, your, your case sounds, um, I mean, many of these cases follow a similar sort of pattern, and it sounds a lot like the case of Anna Thomas, who I mentioned before, the civil servant yeah. of the Department of Work and Pensions, who just won a £100,000 payout. Um, she she was exposing politically partial activity that was going on within the department. Um, and the common theme here seems to be that in both cases, you have a, a a class of people at the top of these organisations um, and in the middle management of these organisations who just don't quite anticipate that these are politically contentious issues. Or they might think that there's a small minority of bigots in society who object to um, trans ideology or critical race theory or whatever the issue is um but they don't they don't think that's an opinion that is worthy of respect in a democratic society they don't think that that's something that they need to be impartial towards and they see it as in that extraordinary quote that tom read out at the start of the episode as being equivalent to uh, far right or neo-nazi or, or, or outright racist ideas um and, and you said you you didn't quite anticipate um exactly the strength of of what you were wading into mm. but in hindsight do you feel that there was any kind of um internal radicalization for want of a better word within the organization that there, there was this sort of uh, distortion of focus away from art and and, and towards a, a, a very aggressive sort of edi policy that, that was very uh fixed in its ideological lens and approach mm. um no, I don't think that the organisation deliberately radicalised staff. Um, um, I do think that leaders at the top didn't recognise what was happening uh, sooner and didn't act on it. And I do think there was there were staff conduct issues that were bubbling under that weren't properly dealt with. And I don't know actually how you deal with it, to be honest. But anyway, um, yeah, so... So no, I don't. I don't think that was happening. But I do think there was a um, um, a very insular way of thinking, in which, in which, no matter how much you say this is a wider issue in society, you've got to get to grips with it uh, within your organisation and recognise that this is going to have ramifications outside our organisation. The the leadership never quite got to grips with that, and um, I think. I think tried to ignore it, you know, um, and I, 
I think still are. I mean, if you if you look at the the statement that my organisation put out after the the tribunal win, it's still very insular in terms of just protecting the organisation and not recognising that actually, um, you know, they they made a mistake. Yeah. One of the most powerful comments I heard, Denise, from one of my colleagues, or, or our colleagues, Ben and I's colleagues, uh, Carrie Clark, uh, when we were talking about diversity, inclusion and equity, was that the thing about the whole diversity industry is that there's no diversity of thought within the diversity industry. Uh, we have a few wonderful examples of a diversity of thought, such as Don't Divide Us, uh, such mm. as the LGB Alliance. Um is your view that, um, or, or be interested to hear what your thoughts are on that idea of diversity of thought within this, and and why there doesn't seem to be within the within individual organisations much diversity of thought? Do you think that these organisations are starting to make a real difference, or is there a, or is there just such a lot to break down first before we see um, things improve? Um. If I'm honest, I didn't come across Don't Divide Us until very late in the day with my case. And and, and internally circulating those kind of ideas would, would be quite difficult. Um, Interesting. So I, I, I actually think, you know, the arts is a very, uh, I guess, homogenous in its thinking. Um, so, but, so there is a real need. To kind of because obviously the population have a very wide set of ideas. You know, the, the audiences come from all different backgrounds. We can't just narrow down our workforce and our organisations to just one set of views. Um, yeah, I don't. I I personally don't know what impact it's it's having because it's very easy for people in the arts just to say, "Oh, they're right wing." Oh, it's right wing. You know, nothing to well, do like with us. Well, like in the quote, neo-Nazi is pulled out. Yeah, everything's it? right wing. Everything's right wing. <laughs> Even if you've been working at the Arts Council for fifteen years, you're a right wing neo-Nazi. <laughs> but um, yeah, so there's, there's a lot to do. We, we, we spend so much time, um, particularly in the last year and a half, speaking to very left-wing women, mm. lesbian mm. activists, and so on. Um, who've approached the Free Speech Union for help in situations that are that are very similar to yours and mm. certainly fought over the same terrain. Um, and it, we, we've even done a survey that we spoke about, I think, last week or the episode before, didn't we, Tom, where we where mm. we we looked into the sort of political uh, view views of our of our members. Um, mm. And you know, the the idea that this is just something that's happening to right wing sort of you know, people with with fringe racist views or something like that, and that everybody else is free to speak their mind. It's complete nonsense. I mean, it's this is happening to people with with completely ordinary views that most people would agree with and that are worthy of respect, um, to use the mm. the legal wording. Um, uh, and yet, still, these cases are going on. And I, 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 the, I think the first question I asked you was about whether. Uh, we could feel the wind in our sails now and whether we've, to mix metaphors, turned a corner and the, the, the right side is starting to, to triumph in these cases. But so often we see, despite the uh, the headline victories by uh, Maya, by people like yourself, um, these things aren't quite percolating down yet. And mm. at the sort of HR level, there are still administrators and, and personnel staff who, who've just not got the message 
that actually it's okay not to agree with the claims of crowns rights activists and that I, I wouldn't agree with that you know i would i wouldn't say it's necessarily a hr i think hr have you know they recognize the impact in the law of forced data uh and you know and the and the opposite uh, cases that have, have perhaps worked against us so so i don't think it's necessarily hr i think and they know the risks they can see the risks coming up um from staff groups um, they know what harassment is, you know. I think it's leadership, really, that haven't grasped that um, staff groups can actually rule your organisation. If you're not careful, uh, you can be completely taken over by the views of your your organisation, your 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 staff. Wouldn't HR have a role? My, my experience that HR well, it's still, is it's still subservient, isn't it, to yeah. to leaders. And to trustees and to board members and, you know, and, and, and that's, that's, that's where we want to, um, you know, in the future, I want to work more closely with arts leaders to kind of have those discussions, um, I guess, kind of don't divide us in the arts type approach um, to, to start to bring out leaders to think about how we can kind of tackle uh, staff groups that perhaps, perhaps are becoming radicalised or are very negative for the organisations because um, leaders seem to me very confused chairs, trustees it's their organisations I, I think what, one point that we've come across that backs up exactly what you've just said about about the influence of these uh, staff LGBTQIA plus groups um, we, we have a case that's been in the press over the last fortnight um, involving an army medic a colonel yeah. Dr. Kelvin Wright that you may have seen. Um, and a, a very similar sort of dynamic seems to have taken place, even in the army, even in the Ministry of Defence, where you have uh, these LGBTQIA plus networks. Um, you, we need to just record me saying that so I don't have to keep saying that. It's, it's, <laughs> it's quite an irritating just, just drop it in there, to say whenever we need to. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah exactly. Um, but, but even in his case... Um, I think he would probably recognise a lot of what you've just described, where there's a role for HR and perhaps we're blaming HR too much, but that there is the influence of these groups that that is just disproportionate. And it just takes a few really committed people within an organisation, even in the army, to completely Mm -hmm. distort the emphasis of of what the leadership is supposed to be focusing on. Um, So I I think there's a lot in your analysis. And I'm sure for leaders as well in the arts, this has all come up quite quickly. You know, let, let's not forget Forstata. When did when was the Forstata win? Was it twenty nineteen? Twenty nineteen. Yeah, and there was an initial loss, yeah. wasn't there? There was an initial case yeah. that was lost, and, it was and the then appeal. Then there was appeal. Yeah. And that was successful. That, I think it was twenty. The appeal was twenty twenty, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's actually not that long ago, in some ways, um, and you know, unless you know, it's quite often us nerds that are absorbed in court rulings that think this is it, this has changed the world, (laughs) which it has. Um, You know, there's absolutely no way my case would have been successful without Forstata. So um, now I just don't think arts leaders have have realised the the significance of that ruling in their organisations. To me, it does still seem extraordinary that um, we have to resort to the law you know, that we're even having to to argue the point that biological sex is real and that people can say that quite freely uh, without without perpetrating hate against anybody. Um, 
but I, I don't think our leaders have recognised it. And this is why I keep saying stick to the law. The law itself is actually quite progressive. The Equality Act was only 2010, and we're barely delivering that. So <laughs> we don't need to go further than the law as it stands. Um, but I don't think leaders have recognised that. I think they've allowed, you know, the personal views, the personal cultures uh, of artists and, and other individuals to influence entirely the, their programme and how they operate their organisations. Denise, one thing I'd be very interested in your thoughts on is we talked we talked a little bit about um, not just trans uh, ideology and the effect yeah. that it's having on on institutions on public funding and on other things in our society but also about woke more generally and we made an observation a few episodes ago that the whole ideology no great art is coming out of it you know great literature great out of a, an empty ideology you tend not to get great art i'd be very interested in your thoughts on that but but i'd make one proviso i think there is some great art coming out of it is the stories such as yours you know imagine putting that on the stage or or, or you know there the, i think some of these battles that are going on could actually themselves be very interesting art contemporary art describing the times we live in whether we can ever get these put on on i don't know but i'd be very interested in your thoughts about whether we are getting enough good art coming through um, and and getting the voice heard. Well, there is um, there is uh, a theatre maker planning to do the Mermaids versus LGB Alliance Brilliant. as a play, and he's presenting Ooh. it as a read through. Uh, I'll send you the link so that perhaps you can put the link into your podcast. But so that and obviously David Hare did very similar, didn't he, with the Iraq War play. Uh, mm. so, so people have talked about the, the kind of recent history. Um, there, there are there are interesting exhibitions that come through woke ideology. I wouldn't argue that that uh, it, it's completely empty because obviously it's a huge debate thinking about uh, different identities and you know how their realities play out in the world, and that does produce some really interesting art. It's just that sometimes it can be a bit repetitive and, um, and perhaps it's just a bit too much. So I wouldn't say that woke ideology isn't interesting. It is. Um, and I've, I've seen some great exhibitions. But I, I, it sounds a bit naff, but I actually sometimes yearn just to see really beautiful things, you know, and I've really quite enjoyed looking back at things that I myself dismissed, really, but kind of decorative art and um, those kind of collections... Uh, I've really enjoyed, for example, the Crafts Council re recent show at the Somerset House of Collect. Just some fantastic work. So, um, so no, I don't think uh, it, it's killing art. It's just that there's too much. <laughs> and there are other areas that are being neglected. Um, and, you know, basic aesthetic sometimes in art has got lost. I think it's the, it's the difference between art being animated by a progressive ethos of some kind versus hectoring. And I think particularly, mm. particularly in films, um, increasingly the balance has been tipped towards hectoring audiences, which, which I think people really, you know, I mean, you don't, you don't, that's not why you go to the cinema, not that people really go to the cinema anymore. Um, and I think the balance has tipped too far in, in respect of that. And there seems to me a space where exactly as you've just described, where, 
um, art by progressive artists that advances the cause of social justice. I mean, I'm sure such a thing could exist, but it, but it, it's the hectoring tone um, and the mm. way in which the 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 sort of the drive for equality, diversity, inclusion overrides artistic expression. That seems to be um, that seems to be the problem for me. I think that audience audiences have so i mean you gave the example of of um, the exhibition at the tate and you know how many people actually went to go and see it um and you see this in the signage at uh, at museums and that sort of thing often there are there are examples circulating on twitter of um uh, of, of sort of ludicrous signs written by 22 year old recent graduates who who have um i think as we've talked about before um you know not not very high incomes but actually quite a lot of social capital a lot of influence um mm. for a pretty junior role um, I think that seems to be, is that what you're driving at, Tom, where, where there is this sort of barren artistic yeah. fields that need to be replanted and re-sown? I think hectoring is, is the word one doesn't want to be preached at. I'll go to church on a Sunday uh, to get mm. preached at and probably told, you know, that I'm evil or whatever. That's fine. That's what I'm there for. But if I'm going to, to, to an art exhibition or to, to the cinema or to the theatre, I'm reading some literature yeah, I don't want to be hectored. I want to be inspired. And there I think aesthetics and beauty are very interesting. And I, I'm very interested in what you say there, Denise. I think there is um, always going to be some great art that comes out of every time. Um, mm. it, it, it sometimes feels like there's not enough uh, places to, to drink deeply of mm. inspiring art. Sometimes it's quite difficult to square two points of view. So um, I saw the Jerwood Photography Prize recently at the Jerwood Space and, you know, two photographers, one showing work, and I actually know the artist from, from North Yorkshire of, of rural um, uh, lifestyles and, and, you know, some cases of rural poverty in North Yorkshire. So kind of documentary Um and one looking at Jungian philosophy and um, how it affected the artist's um, thinking and putting those two pieces of work together, I just thought, this, this doesn't work. <laughs> it just, I mean, obviously it was a prize, uh, so it was looking at different, but it, sometimes, you, it, yeah, there's just such a clash. And then other times um, I just find the language so off-putting. You know, I went to see a show recently which was talking about um, the transatlantic slave trade in Liverpool and referring to the ocean. And it referred to uh, brown and black bodies, which I think, why are we using that language? It's so dehumanising to speak about people as bodies. Um, and, and that seems to be another trend in the arts, to refer to human beings as sort of objective things. The challenge is to find the lens with which to understand our times. It's always the most difficult mm. thing, isn't it? To, to understand your own times and to, to sift through, or particularly in the arts, it's, it's particularly interesting in the arts, to sift through everything and to work out this will last, this will last and last and last. This is saying something timeless. Uh, whereas this, like you said, that didn't quite work. I can't see that being enjoyed by the next generation and the next generation. It reminds me of a um, art exhibition from 2001, which was a repeat of an exhibition from 1901. Um, oh. And all the art from the 1901 exhibition was, was, was rehung. Uh, 
And it included things like, and I, I can't remember who the, the, I can't even remember whether Picasso, Picasso was around at the time. Anyhow, some of the great geniuses, but yeah. interspersed with all of this dross uh, of the time of these fat cherubs sitting in rivers or whatever it might have been. And the dross, no one, no one remembers, but the gems a hundred years later. And what was interesting going to that exhibition is the gems, you'd walk into a room and you could see almost because we were looking with 20, early 21st century eyes, you could see what lasted and why it lasted. Even when you couldn't necessarily mm. articulate why, you could say, yeah, I can see why that lasted and that didn't. And, and for me, mm. that's the interesting question, you know, how we find a lens to understand the art of our own time. I think what you'll find as well, though, with an exhibition, I mean, an exhibition from the 1901, we didn't have a whole class of arts workers then. We, did, we had collectors. We didn't have curators. And, and now I think we're finding the curator is, is more powerful than the artist and, to a degree, perhaps more powerful than the collector. Uh, and it's the curator's political philosophy or, or lens that you're seeing in exhibitions, not necessarily the artist. And, and that is like, a big it's like shift. It's the publisher and the, and the author. Yeah. Absolutely. So what gets platformed, and it goes back to your point about impartiality, doesn't it? What... Um, what gets seen is a decision by an individual, by by a venue, but also how it's seen as the decision of the curator, mm-hmm. and that's what sets the the political positioning, and that also is what determines the funding because that they will write the funding bids, and you know, it's it. So the, so the artist is all in many ways is sat within a wider vision that they don't have the control over, um, and I mean. I think when I started working in the arts, the idea of the curator, um, the curator was was in many ways there to do a favour for the artist, was to get the art get the art out to find the work, present it, um, and and in many ways it was uh, and conserve it and document it and protect it um, and sell it, you know. But now the role of the curator has, has changed into the interpreter of the work. Um, and even to the extent where they invite interpretations by others who aren't curators at all or don't even know the work to come in, as you were saying about when there's strange interpretations come in and um, people write really bizarre things next to paintings, which the, the painter had no intention <laughs> of portraying. And that's such a free speech issue, isn't it, Denise? Yeah. That, that really is at heart such a free speech issue, this sort of positioning themselves between the the creator of the art and the consumer of the art and 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 taking a view or directing it inside or adding a little label and little labels matter they really matter how that gets mm. presented and completely changing the interpretation how it's consumed versus how it was created um, or how it's problematized yeah to use the jargon yeah i mean the, the classic example was a, a piece um, I think it's like a 17th century piece presented at York Art Gallery of um, St Agnes, who was tortured. I mean, I don't know much about St Agnes, you know. Anyway, it's a piece in the York Art Gallery um, collection, I think. And uh, it was presented during Pride. So it had a label next to her. She, The poor woman, unfortunately, had her breasts amputated as part of her torture. And the 
they put a pride piece next to it saying her her look of kind of horror looking at the heavens was a look of trans euphoria and i just <laughs> while being tortured <laughs> that was not the intention i can tell you of the 17th century painter who presented this work or even the source of the story was nothing to do with this but that is in a public realm and and, and also it was in, within a uh, a place of knowledge and and i find that really worrying that uh, you know something a, a venue that is publicly funded that's there to present knowledge as you say tom uh, ben is being pro- problematized to present completely different view uh and it kind of takes away the authority of the artist as well as the curator <laughs> I mean, you've come through the fire of being cancelled effectively, Denise. It's like someone taking a picture of you when you were your lowest ebb and totally reinterpreting that and and saying, look, look, this is this means something completely different. Whereas actually you're at your lowest ebb after going through the fire of cancellation. Yeah, I guess it's always happened in art, hasn't it? Reinterpretation. I mean, it's interesting that exhibition you're talking about is, is inviting you to reinterpret. Um, have works presented but it feels so calculated now so political well it seems like on on the one hand for for new art i mean take a novel for instance if you're if you're trying to get a, a novel published you've got so many gatekeepers to go through and it's always been a bit like that but you've got to go through the literary agent's assistant the literary agent the commissioning editor the publisher all the way down to the level of the person working on the till or stacking the shelves who might not like your book and might hide mm. it out of view. And so you have all of these gatekeepers if you want to produce something new. But if you're talking about uh, older works of classic art, St Agnes, as you've said, um, even that has to be reinterpreted through this sort of socialist, realist lens where, mm. I mean, socialist realism produces a lot of really interesting artwork, but but you don't want that to be the only thing you can drink from. You want mm. to have a... a, a diversity of of styles and and materials and interpretations all the rest of it and that's what seems to have been choked off um Mm. and that that seems to me what what people need to resist but it's so difficult in this small arts world that that you've described and we've had so many members who've approached us with issues related to the arts where it's just so difficult to push back against this this interpretation of uh equality and this this pushing of a particular view of trans rights well, it's, it's, I mean, it's the arts ecology as well. If you think of, you know, the arts, the arts workforce is very, it's highly educated, it's poorly paid, uh, it's not particularly diverse, um, and uh, it's very young. You know, it's a young workforce. And and if you look at, um, you know, we've the Arts Council publishes data, uh, particularly on organisations that have more than fifty employees. You can you can see trends in those organizations just from their workforce data you know there's some there's some organizations where the majority of the um of the workforce says they don't have a biological sex you know there's one that that was something like 47 percent um now you can see that that workforce is going to have a particular take on the program that comes through just from the data um and and similarly you know the I mean, bizarre. I was really surprised by the census that told us only three percent of the population are gay. I was I was quite shocked by that. I thought it was much higher than that. Perhaps 
I, I even doubt that figure, but that's what the census told us. And yet, you know, big rep theatres, the workforce is about 27%, 30% of the workforce is gay. Um, but not gay, LGBTQIA+. So we don't obviously know what TQIA plus really means in terms of sexuality, because it's not a sexuality. So um, you, you can see from the workforce itself, and then if you go backwards again into HE, uh, the same problems are coming through in, in HE through arts courses. So it's a long-term problem for the arts in terms of you know viewpoints that are just very, very extreme um, and a long way from the public that they're going to come out to serve as artists or um, as arts workers. So that's why I think it's a bit of a long-term problem. <laughs> yeah. Denise, thank you so much for sharing all these thoughts. Um, I love the fact that you're, you're tying in the data to that because a word that uh, we need to bring back into the whole discussion is empiric empiricism and, and going back to the yeah. data. And it's something that uh, I've heard over the last week or so. I'm also really glad we managed to talk about art the way we have without necessarily and i'm about to mention him michel foucault you know i we, we we didn't even have to mention him and his effect on art uh, uh, over the last mm. and philosophy over the last uh, 40 40 years or however long it is yeah but it's been fantastic um uh, having you on the episode we're so sorry that you've had to go through um what you've gone through but um we need heroes like you uh to come out the other side to win and to start to say to to indicate to other people uh, that there is a way through this and there is a future, um, but you, as you say, it's a, it's going to be a long fight, I think, a long battle, mm. and certainly uh, we at the Free Speech Union are uh, intending to play our part. Um, so thank you very much indeed. Is there anything you wanted to say, Denise? Or well, I'd like to thank Free Speech Union as well because they 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 gave me advice and supported me at, at some of the most difficult times actually, and and uh, their membership was worth every penny. So thank you for Brilliant. that, and thank you for that, Denise, because it's it's great value for money membership. It's just starts <laughs> monthly membership starts at, at two pounds forty nine. Get it while you can because we are we are looking mm. at our rates at the moment, but it does start at two pounds forty nine for monthly membership. Uh, freespeechunion.org. Uh, and you'll be able to find, uh, all listeners will be able to find how to sign up to the Free Speech Union and uh, join this fight to get back some sanity. But thank you again, and thank you to our listeners, and we will speak to you next week. Okay. Thank you. Thanks Goodbye. Thanks all. Bye-bye.